you have a copy of God's Word, it may be a printed copy like I have. You could have a digital copy on your phone or your iPad. Let me encourage you to hold it up right now and repeat after me what we believe about this book. This is God's Word. It is a perfect treasure of divine instruction. It has God for its author, salvation for its end, and truth without any mixture of error for its matter. It is the supreme source of truth for what we believe and how we live. Now, open up your Bibles with me to Revelation chapter 10. Revelation chapter 10. If you've ever watched a baseball game, you're familiar with a seventh inning stretch. The seventh inning stretch is a brief break in the game before the completion of the seventh inning. It's a pause. It's an intermission. It's, it's a time to catch your breath before the game goes into the final innings. Well, in the book of Revelation, there are two seventh inning stretches. There's one that occurs after the sixth seal judgment, before the beginning of the seventh seal judgment. And the second one is here in chapter 10 of Revelation, after the sixth trumpet judgment, before the seventh trumpet judgment. It's as if God pauses the revelation, revealing the judgment on the world to remind us that even during this most horrific time that the world has ever experienced, God is still a God of mercy. God is still on his throne, and he is working all things out to accomplish his perfect plan. Now, let me take a moment to remind you of where we have been, just in case there are some of you who haven't been here throughout the study of Revelation. The church... The true believers have been removed from the world. The reason I say the true believers is because the true church is not comprised of the people whose names are on a roll. It's not even comprised of the people who are here on a given Sunday morning. The true church is made up of those who have been born again through the Spirit of God, who have been saved through the blood of Jesus Christ. And the Bible makes it clear that God has an exit strategy for his church. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, we are told about this exit strategy called the rapture. The Bible says that the church will go up into the air to meet the Lord in the air. And then we will be with the Lord forever. Now at any moment, the church could be raptured. At any moment, the church could be taken out of the world. And that is a good thing. Because when we are taken out of this world, we will meet our Savior face to face. But for those who are left behind, there will be a time of great tribulation unlike anything the world has ever seen before. It will be a pouring out of the wrath of God, judgment after judgment. It begins with the seal judgments, a time of world war, famine, and plagues. And by the time the seal judgments are over, one fourth of the population of the world will have died. 
Then we will see the trumpet judgments. And in the trumpet judgments, a, a third of all of the vegetation on the earth is destroyed through hell and fire. The Bible says that a great asteroid, meteor, will fall into the ocean, destroying a third of the life in the ocean, creating cataclysmic events. A third of the ocean-going vessels will be destroyed. And then other meteors will fall into the fresh water, causing the water supply to become bitter, and many people will die from that. And then a third of all of the light from the sun and from the stars will disappear, maybe because of a cosmic disaster or an ecological disaster. We don't know, but, but that will affect not just the light, but it will affect heat. It will affect energy. It will affect us in many different ways. But that's just the beginning of the trumpet judgments because then God will allow demons, a demonic influence to come upon the world to create torment upon the people of the world. And for five months, people will be tormented in such a way that they will want to die, but they can't die. But then after this five months is over, God will allow another demonic force to be unleashed upon the world. And at that point, another third of the world's population will die. That means that by this time in the tribulation, one half of the population of the world has died. Now, I believe at this point we are in the midpoint of the tribulation. In the next several chapters, you will find five references to three and a half years. We're at that point where the Antichrist breaks his truce with Israel. He desecrates the temple of Israel. And I believe it's that time that the Old Testament calls the time of Jacob's trouble. It's a time when the Antichrist will up his attack on Israel and seek to destroy the Israelite nation. But before that comes, God pauses to remind us that even though all hell is breaking loose on planet earth, God has a plan. And everything is moving toward the accomplishment of that plan. Now, as we look at this chapter, to be honest with you, it looks kind of out of place because everything up to this point, except for that pause, that seventh inning stretch that we read about a little in chapter 8, everything else seems to fall into place to what's happening on earth. But as we read this chapter, this doesn't really seem to be something that's happening on earth. And to be honest with you, it seems like what we read is more for John's benefit and for our benefit than it is for the people of the world. Now, as we look at this chapter, there are three things that we see. It's kind of an easy way to outline this chapter. We see what John saw, we hear what John hears, and we're told what John is told to do. Now, what I'm going to do today, because this chapter is a little bit different, is we're just going to walk through this chapter. And then after we walk through this chapter, I'm going to share with you three takeaways that I think are truths that can apply to us today because of what we read in this chapter. Now, let's begin reading in verse 1. It says, Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, surrounded by a cloud with a rainbow over his head. His face shone like the sun and his feet were like pillars of fire. And in his hand was a small scroll that had been opened. He stood with his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land. 
and he gave a great shout like the roar of a lion. And when he shouted, the seven thunders answered. When the seven thunders spoke, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven saying, keep secret what the seven thunders said. Do not write it down. Then the angel I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand toward heaven and he swore an oath in the name of the one who lives forever and ever who created the heavens and everything in them, the earth and everything in it and the sea and everything in it. He said there will be no more delay. When the seventh angel blows his trumpet, God's mysterious plan will be fulfilled. It will happen just as he announced it to his servants, the prophets. Then the voice from heaven spoke to me again, go, take the open scroll from the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel. I told him to give me the small scroll. Yes, take it and eat it, he said. It will be sweet as honey in your mouth, but it will turn sour in your stomach. So I took the small scroll from the hand of the angel and I ate it. It was sweet in my mouth, but when I swallowed it, it turned sour in my stomach. Then I was told, you must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, languages, and kings. Now, verse 1 introduces us to a mighty angel. Now, if you've ever read through the Bible, you know that the Bible speaks often about angels. In Hebrews chapter 1, verse 14, we're told, Are not all angels ministering spirits sent to serve those who inherit salvation? Angels are sent to minister to us. In Psalms 103, verse 20, it says, Praise the Lord, you his angels, you mighty ones who do his bidding, who obey his word. The Bible seems to indicate that angels are God's army sent to accomplish God's purpose on planet earth. But to be honest with you, there's much that we don't know about angels. I believe one day in eternity, we're going to understand angels much better. But in this present day, a lot about angels are a mystery. Now, we know angels are worshipers because we see them around the throne worshiping God day and night. And even on earth, when there are special events like the birth of Jesus, we see angels worshiping before man. Angels are worshipers. Angels are ministers. They are sent to minister to those of us who know the Lord, who follow the Lord. And there are times even where angels are warriors. God sends them to intervene in our life, into our situations on our behalf to fight spiritual battles for us. But there is a debate among many Bible teachers, good quality Bible teachers, on who this mighty angel is. There are some like John MacArthur and and Danny Aiken, who's the president of Southeastern Seminary, who say this angel is none other than a, a mighty angel, a powerful angel. But then there are others who say that this angel is much more than just an angel. People like Adrian Rogers and David Jeremiah, Warren Wiersbe, and many others say that this angel is not actually an angel. This angel is representative of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, those who say this is simply an angel do so for two reasons. They say, first of all, there's no other place in the book of Revelation where Jesus is referred to as an angel, and that's true. And then second, they say, it's obvious Jesus is more than an angel. And that's true as well. But when you look at how this angel is described, and you look at what this angel does, 
it becomes obvious that this angel is much more than just an angel. Now, regardless of whether this is a mighty, powerful angel or this is the Lord Jesus Christ, it doesn't change the meaning of this passage, and yet I believe it does help us better understand something about our Lord. Now, as I've studied this passage over and over and over again, I've come to the conclusion that this angel is representative of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you may say, why do you believe that? Well, first of all, because in the Old Testament, there are a number of places where the angel of the Lord is simply a pre-incarnate picture of Jesus. Jesus is called the angel of the Lord. In Genesis 22, when, when Abraham was about to offer Isaac as a sacrifice um, on the altar there, it says the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said, do not do this, and provided the sacrifice. That angel of the Lord was Jesus. In Exodus chapter 3, when Moses was in the wilderness and he saw that burning bush, the Bible says the angel of the Lord spoke to him from that burning bush. And then the very next verse talks about the Lord speaking to him. The angel of the Lord who appeared to Moses was none other than Jesus. In Judges chapter 6, when Gideon was called to be the deliverer of the nation of Israel, the Bible says that the angel of the Lord appeared to him. As we read Judges chapter 6, it's obvious that this angel of the Lord was not just an angel. This was the Lord Jesus. Oftentimes, when people had an encounter with the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament, they thought that they were going to die because they had seen the Lord. In Isaiah chapter 63, verse 9, it says, The Lord is the angel of his presence. The Lord Jesus is referred to in Isaiah 63 as the angel of God's presence. So I would say to you that throughout the Old Testament, Jesus is referred to as the angel of the Lord. Now look how he is described. It says that he is surrounded by clouds. And in the Old Testament, we see that over and over again. When God was leading the people of Israel out of Egypt to the promised land, he led them by a pillar of cloud during the day. When Moses went up on Mount Sinai to receive the Ten Commandments, it said the Lord came down to him in a thick cloud. We are told in the Old Testament that when the high priest went into the Holy of Holies to offer a sacrifice to God and he would enter into the very presence of God, God would descend on the mercy seat in the form of a cloud. So this seems to be a picture of, of God, of deity. And then it says he had a rainbow over his head. In Revelation chapter 4 verse 3, we see that there is a rainbow over the throne of God. We're told that his face shines like the sun and his feet are like pillars of fire. This reminds us of the description we read about Jesus in, in Revelation 1. And then when he speaks, he speaks with the roar of a lion. The Bible tells us that Jesus is the lion of Judah. And notice what he is holding. He is holding a small open scroll. Now, some people say that this scroll isn't the same scroll that we read about in chapter 5 because it is a small scroll. But I want you to notice something. It is an open scroll. In Revelation chapter 5, we see this closed 
seal scroll. No one was worthy to open that scroll until Jesus, the Lamb of God, the Lion of Judah came. And he was worthy to open the scroll. And in Revelation 6 and following, those seals are unlocked and the scroll is open. And we get to Revelation 10 and now this angel is holding an open scroll. I believe the scroll that he's holding is the same scroll that we read about in Revelation 5. Notice his posture. This angel has one foot on land and the other foot on the sea. This is a big angel. But understand, I don't think that's the point of the passage. I think the point of the passage is to show us what Jesus is doing. When Jesus put one foot on the land and the other foot on the sea, he is staking claim to planet earth. He is saying, this is mine. And so we see this mighty angel that is described like Jesus who is holding the open scroll that is laying claim to planet earth. Now look at verses 3 and 4. John hears the seven thunders speak to this mighty angel. And he's about to write down what the seven thunders say. But then from heaven hears a voice saying, keep secret what you have heard. That word keep secret literally means to seal up. In Revelation 5, God unseals the scroll. But in Revelation 10, God tells John to seal up. What the seven thunders say. Now why did God do that? I don't know. We don't know. God didn't want us to know. You see. There are some things that you just don't need to know. And there are some things that I don't need to know. And you know the problem with humanity. We want to know everything don't we? We want an answer to every question. But the problem with that is, we don't have the answer to every question. In Deuteronomy 29, verse 29, it says, The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us and our children. There are things that are secret that belong only to God. God says, you don't need to know that, and you're not going to know it. There are other things that God says, I want you to know this, and I'm going to reveal it to you. Like when he opened the scroll in Revelation 5. But he closed up and sealed what the seven thunders said here. Now look again what it says in verses 5 through 7. It says, then the angel I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand toward heaven. He swore an oath in the name of the one who lives forever and ever, who created the heavens and everything in them, the earth and everything in it, and the sea and everything in it. He said, there will be no more delay when the seventh angel blows his trumpet. God's mysterious plan will be fulfilled. It will happen just as he announced it to his servants, the prophets. Some would say, well, see, this says that it can't be Jesus because this angel made a, an oath to the one in heaven. But don't forget that in Hebrews, God made an oath to himself. Because there was no one greater than God. And so just because this mighty angel makes a, an oath to the one who is on the throne. Isn't saying anything that we haven't already seen in scripture. And this angel makes a promise. He says there will be no more delay. You remember the martyrs in Revelation 6 verse 10. The fifth seal judgment. 
And the martyrs are all under the altar and they say, how long, O Lord, before you judge the people of this world? Do you remember that? And do you remember what God said? He told them to rest a little bit longer until the full number of your brothers and sisters have joined you. God says, wait. There's going to be a delay. I've got other things to do. And the other things to do is there's going to be other people who join you. Other people who are saved. I want to remind you that God is patient. And that's why he has been holding back judgment. He has been holding it back so that everyone who wants to be saved can be saved. But now he says, once the seventh trumpet sounds, there's no more delay. It's as if God is saying, when the seventh trumpet blows, everyone that wants to be saved will have been saved. Now, does God know everyone that's going to be saved? Absolutely. Does God know when people are going to be saved? Absolutely. God knows everything about the past. God knows everything about our present. God knows everything about the future. God knows if you're here today and you've never received him as your Savior and Lord, God knows if you will receive him and he knows when you receive him. And so God's saying when that seventh trumpet sounds, there's no more delay. The judgment is going to come fast and furious and my kingdom is about to come on earth as it is in heaven. And then he talks about the mystery of God, the mysterious plan in verse 7. Now, the Bible talks a lot about mysteries. We read about the mystery of the gospel. We read about the mystery of the kingdom of, of God. We read about the mystery of the resurrection of the body. We read about the mystery of the relationship of Christ and the church, which is like a bride to a groom. There's a lot of mysteries in the Bible. But in light of what we're going to see happen in chapter 11 and following, I believe the mystery that is about to be revealed is one of two things. And it might include both of them. First of all, I believe it's the mystery of Israel. Did you know there's a mystery about Israel? In Romans chapter 11, verses 25 through 27, it says this, I want you to understand this mystery, dear brothers and sisters, so that you will not feel proud about yourselves. And I want to remind you that, that Paul is writing to the church at Rome. And the majority of these people are Gentiles. They are not Jews. And so Paul's telling them, I don't want you to be proud. Because now God has chosen you to be saved. Some of the people of Israel have hard hearts. But this will last only until the full number of Gentiles come to Christ. And so all Israel will be saved. As the scriptures say, the one who rescues will come from Jerusalem. And he will turn Israel away from ungodliness. And this is my covenant with them that I will take away their sin. I want you to listen to me. God is not through with the nation Israel. The nation of Israel has rejected their Messiah today. But there is coming a day during the tribulation when the Jewish nation will come back to Jesus realizing he is the Messiah. 
And and we read about this this relationship in chapter 11 and following as the Antichrist is trying to destroy Israel. And so that is this mystery that's going to be revealed. And the prophets, by the way, spoke often about this, about how Israel would turn from their God, but there would come a day when they would turn back to him. But I think that this mystery could also uh, be a mystery of sin and iniquity. I mean, that is a mystery, isn't it? I mean, since the fall of man, sin and suffering and death has ruled the world. Why has God allowed that? I mean, if God is sovereign, if God is all-powerful, if Satan is a created being and God could remove him in an instant. Why doesn't he? Why does God allow Satan to rule and reign on planet earth like he does? To be honest with you, that's somewhat of a mystery to us today. If you ever had to read Robinson Crusoe when you were in in school, I did. um, You know that, that that book has a spiritual element, a spiritual theme to it. Robinson Crusoe meets a cannibal on that island. He gives him the name Friday and they become friends. And he takes Friday under his wing and he begins to teach Friday about the God of the Bible. God is all powerful, that God's sovereign, all of these things. One of the things he has a hard time trying to explain to Friday is this whole concept of God versus the devil. And one day Friday asks Robinson Crusoe, If God is all-powerful, if God is sovereign, why doesn't he just kill Satan? And Robinson Crusoe didn't know how to answer that. And so he sent Friday on a task to the other side of the island. You see, there are some things that just don't make sense to us. We sit back and say, why doesn't God remove Satan? Why doesn't God remove the curse of sin? One day he will, but why doesn't he now? Well, it's because... His plan isn't complete. But there's coming a day when he's going to judge the world. And everything will be made known. But then the Bible says that John is told to take the scroll from the angel's hand. And he's told to eat it. And he's told that it will be sweet in his mouth. And then it will turn bitter, sour in his stomach. And then he is given a command to go and proclaim that message to the world. Now, there are three truths, and trust me, this is about five minutes long. (laughs) There are three truths that we see in this seventh inning stretch that apply to you today. Here's truth number one. Regardless of what is happening around us, Jesus is still Lord. Did you hear me? During the tribulation, the world is in turmoil. Demons are roaming the earth, tormenting. Killing people. Satan is sitting on the throne. I mean, how much worse could it get? And yet in Revelation 10, what do we see? Jesus puts his foot on the land. And he puts his foot on the sea. And he says, this is mine. I'm still in control. You need to understand that when we look at our world today, we don't understand all the evil and the wickedness that is going on. We look at the atrocities in Ukraine. We look at the genocide and and the the people groups being put in prisons in China. We look at all the, the 
stupidity that is going on in America. And we wonder, where is God? And then we bring it home and and we're struggling with, with physical illnesses and financial problems and relationships that are falling apart. And we think, where is God? But in spite of anything that happens to your brothers and sisters, God is on his throne and Jesus is Lord. And you can never look at your situation, you can never look at your circumstances to determine who is in control. You've got to look at the one who is on the throne in heaven. The one who will one day make everything new. So first, regardless of what's happening around us, Jesus is still Lord. Second, soon and very soon, Jesus will make everything right. Not today. Not tomorrow. But soon and very soon, he's going to make everything right. The Bible makes it clear that in this world, we'll have injustice. It's a part of life on planet Earth. In this world, we will have suffering. In this world, we will have pain. But soon and very soon, Jesus is going to make everything right. It's not in this world as we know it today. But when he comes again, he's going to right every wrong. He's going to make it all right. And that leads me to the third thing we see in this passage. Until then, our task is to tell the world. I mean, that's what he tells John. He said, here's the scroll. You take it, you eat it, you ingest it, you digest it, you make the scroll a part of who you are, and then you proclaim it to the world. That's what we're called to do. And notice, the word of God is sweet, and the word of God is bitter, sour at times. I mean, when we look at the promises of God, they're sweet, aren't they? When we look at the assurances of God, they're sweet. But then we read the bitter warnings of prophecies and judgments, and they're not so sweet. And even think about the gospel. The gospel is sweet when we think about what Jesus did for us. But the gospel is bitter when we think about the judgment for those who reject Jesus. And yet we're called to share the whole message. That's what John was called to do. Until Jesus comes back, John was told to proclaim the message. That was his task. And that's your task. You see, that's where we can fall into a problem if we're not careful with a book like Revelation. We get so caught up in trying to understand all the symbolism and what everything stands for that we forget the main thing to learn is Jesus is coming. We need to tell the world to get ready. That's our task. So there are two things that I would ask you. Are you ready? Have you repented of your sins and placed your trust in Jesus? Have you surrendered to him as the Lord of your life? If you haven't, there's nothing more important for you to do today. But then second, if you're here and you've done that, you've been given a task to share the gospel until Jesus returns. And so my question is, who are you going to share with? 
I want you to bow your head with me. And first of all, with your head bowed, with your eyes closed, if you're here, you've never given your life to Jesus. I want to encourage you right now to humble yourself before him. Acknowledge your sin. Turn from that sin and give your life to Jesus. You can do that by praying a prayer just like this. You can pray it right now. Dear God, I humbly come to you today admitting that I'm a sinner. I've disobeyed you. I've lived my life like I was on the throne. Forgive me. Jesus, I know you died for my sins. Jesus, I know you rose from the grave defeating sin and death for me. Right here, I'm trusting you to save me. I'm surrendering my life to you. I'm yours. Whatever you want me to do, I'll do. Thank you for hearing my prayer. 